The Mind Itself is a podcast about mental health, mental health law, and how they affect all aspects of our daily lives. By taking a deeper dive into how our society deals with mental health medically, legally, and practically, listeners gain insight and information about one of America's most pressing and often overlooked issues that affects almost half of all adults in the United States. Welcome to the Mind Itself podcast. This is your host, John Whitbeck. Today, we are so pleased to welcome Brandy Izquierdo, the executive director of the SAFE Project, who is here today gracing us with her presence. We thank you so much, Brandy, for joining us. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. I, um, I just really appreciate the opportunity uh, to tell a little bit about the story. So I want to talk today about not just the opioid crisis, but substance abuse in general. And many people don't know this, but it is classified as a mental illness, rightfully so. This is an illness that strikes so many millions of Americans across the country, whether it's alcohol, opioids, marijuana, cocaine, it doesn't matter. It's all part of the same problem that the Mind Itself podcast is trying to combat, and that is the stigma surrounding mental health in our society. And it sounds to me like the SAFE project is right along the lines of what we are fighting that battle. So would you talk a little bit about your employer there, the SAFE project, and sort of what you do and and what the uh, organization does? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. And I, I again, I really appreciate you bringing attention to this. So the SAFE project is actually a baby nonprofit at the moment. I mean, we're a pretty heavy hitter here, but SAFE project was actually formed probably about three years ago when Admiral Sandy Winnefeld and his wife, Mary, lost their son to an accidental opioid overdose on a college campus. The interesting part about it is you mentioned the disease of addiction does not discriminate. It doesn't matter whether you're black, white, poor, rich, any of that. But what the disease of addiction does is it can blindside you. And Safe Project, you know, it's a really unique organization. I have been in the behavioral health field for quite a bit now based on my own personal lived experience and recovery. But this particular organization blew me away when it came one scene in, the, in behavioral health. And the one reason it did was because Admiral Winnefeld and Mary Winnefeld really got it. They really understood what it was like. They took what they experienced with the loss of their son, Jonathan, and really threw it into the organization. And, and ultimately, the organization is formed through initiatives. So we have four initiatives, safe campuses, safe communities, safe workplaces, and safe veterans. And they run through six lines of operation, including public awareness, full spectrum prevention, prescription and medical response, law enforcement and criminal justice, treatment and recovery, and family outreach and support. And the interesting part about that is, as you mentioned, this is a complex issue. This issue has been around for a while. You can't do one aspect of tackling the addiction epidemic without working on another aspect. For instance, law enforcement, we know we can't arrest our way out of this. We know that we need recovery. We know with children, we need prevention. We know that we need to talk about stigma. So, you know, for a complex problem, there needs to be a complex organization that's really working on all of these in tandem. And that's what Safe Project does. There have been organizations around for a long time in terms of nonprofit, state and local government that have worked on specific silos within the behavioral health arena. But we all need to work together to really combat this. And it really is. It's a war out there. We're really we're losing a lot of people. We're losing family members and friends to the disease of addiction. So again, I appreciate you highlighting Safe Project. I appreciate what you do in the law arena on family mental health. So that's really what Safe Project is. And I can sprinkle in some of the programs, but I think you also probably want to hear a little bit about the story 
of how I got here. Absolutely. I think starting at the beginning is very appropriate because not only the extraordinary story of the admiral and his family, but also your your story. Now, I understand that the founder of the SAFE project was Admiral James and Mary and his wife, Mary Winifield. Is that correct? That is correct. And interesting fact, he was the admiral in charge of Top Gun, the famous fighter weapons school, correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. And also served under one of my heroes, Colin Powell, which is an incredible story. Yeah. And and it goes back to what I was saying about how it strikes everybody. It doesn't matter where you're from. You can be the head of Top Gun and still be affected by this. In preparation for today, I had looked up an article on the Atlantic that was written by the Admiral. um, And I just want to read something that sort of overcame, I was a little bit overcoming to me when I read it. If you don't mind, just just sort of to give give a flavor. The Admiral writes in this article, we had moved him and their son into his dormitory room only that morning. I remember how sharp he looked in the outfit he had selected and his eagerness to start class and make new friends. We were happy, relieved, and knowing what we thought we had overcome and proud. At lunch, I asked Jonathan whether he thought he was ready for the coming school year. And he said, quote, dad, I can handle it as long as I continue my recovery. He said, everything flows from that. Only three days later, Jonathan was found unresponsive in his dormitory room bed, one of several victims of fentanyl-laden batch of heroin that had spread to the Denver area that week. You know, as a father myself, you, know, you think about what a, a, a man who's sent men and women into combat, probably seen combat himself. He was trusted enough to train America's front line, the best pilots, the elite pilots in, in, our, in our Navy. And probably the toughest thing beyond anything he ever faced was what he just found when he found his son in his dormitory bed. And, and I just, I can't even fathom, but to turn that into an incredible organization is exactly the kind of character I'm sure that him and his wife are. But even more importantly, they need someone like you to head it up because I'm certain that they don't have all the answers for running a project like this. So that's why they have you. So if you're okay with it, I would love Brandy to get into your background and your story and how you came to be the executive director of this important organization. Yeah. And thanks, John. I think I still pinch myself to this day because Admiral Winnefeld, not only is he, you know, with Top Gun and all of that, but he's also the former vice chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the United States of America. And, you know, I pinch myself on that end of it. But I think even coming into this organization, the one thing that I always look at between Sandy and Mary are that they're family members who have lost their son. He's a dad. She's a mom. I have kids of my own. And being a person in long-term recovery, you know, I battle this every day, the fear going into uh, raising the children and not knowing, especially with fentanyl laced in everything at this point, not knowing, or do they have the tools? Do they have the understanding of what addiction looks like? And You know, I I don't want to say I beat them over the head with it, but they are very well aware. But that doesn't stop the fact that, you know, they're still exposed to it. They've lost friends themselves. And I think just going back on my own story, I was talking to one of your counterparts and it's really about the story before the story. It's not just about the addiction. It's about the trajectory that leads to the addiction. I know for myself, my addiction, I was blindsided. It wasn't like I woke up one day and said, hey, I'm going to make this career move. I'm going to say, you know, let's get into addiction. That would be a perfect career move. It's very insidious disease and we don't see it coming. And when it's here, you know, it's, it's a life or death situation. 
And for me, you know, even growing up on the mental health side of things, I think quite often when we talk about mental health, we talk about serious mental illness or our mind goes immediately to serious mental illness, schizophrenia, perhaps institutions, things like that. We don't always necessarily look at the subtle aspects of mental health. I know Jonathan, um, Mary has shared with me numerous times, really struggled with anxiety. He was a very introverted. Um, so it's really important for us to understand all the complexities associated with addiction, that it's not just about the substance, it's about something much deeper. And for me, for example, you know, trying to fill that void, I could probably go really raw in, in this podcast, but it depends on how deep you want to go with that. But I will say I'm a product of a divorced family from back in the day. I mean, I guess I could say I'm middle age at this point. Um, I don't like to say that, but that's where I am here. Where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Baltimore. So growing up in Baltimore, you know, I went to Catholic school. It's interesting, John, because in Catholic school where I went, you know, there was one side of the street that was more affluent and there was the other side of the street that wasn't. My family struggled uh, tremendously with money, access to services, things of that sort. And I was on the side of the street that wasn't as affluent. So even growing up in school, I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like I was less than. And with my father leaving uh, my mother at the age of three, I didn't have a father in my life. My mother remarried um, and had two other children. Even in the family dynamic, I felt like I didn't fit in. I felt like I was kind of the outsider, the redheaded stepchild, I guess you would say, of, of the family. And I can say, again, I'm going to be a little raw here. By the, by the time I was about seven or eight years old, my mother was going back to work and had my sister and we were babysat by the next door neighbor. And I was molested as a child. And that was pretty deep. I will tell you for law enforcement, my first exposure to them were the officers coming to the door because there were a couple other girls in the neighborhood that had the same thing happen, happen to them. And the law enforcement came to the door and I'll never forget them handing me a doll and saying, where did he touch you? And that was my first exposure uh, to law enforcement. So that was kind of um, traumatizing, I guess you could say. My mother never did get me counseling because for me, I was pretty, I was a pretty outgoing child. Nothing was wrong, or at least I suppressed those feelings. I wasn't attuned to the fact that perhaps I should have gotten help or therapy back then. From there, I found the liquor cabinet at the age of 11. At the age of 11, I remember going down to my parents' basement and looking at this liquor and taking a drink of it. And I mean, when I say I went blackout full spin, spinning fan drunk. That's exactly what I did at the age of 11. Not really realizing I had to numb some feelings or I was attempting to numb feelings. And also, you know, for me, there was a man issue. You'll hear that a lot with women in recovery. You know, I always felt like I had to be validated or fill that void. So in order to do that, you know, I sought boyfriends and, and by the age of 16, I was pregnant with my first child. So I was a teenage mom as well. My grandparents were old school, so it was uh, more of you stick and stay in this relationship, regardless of how that relationship is, how toxic that relationship is. And um, ended up having four children with my husband, who's now my ex-husband. And even with that, the trajectory of my life, I found myself in a lot of domestic violence situations uh, with my ex-husband. There were a lot of protective orders, no support, family services. And it was really a race to who could utilize those services quicker and either myself or my ex-husband, who would get the help that they needed. At that point, you know, my addiction really took off. 
like you mentioned, it wasn't just about opioids. It was really the cocaine, the ecstasy, the marijuana, the alcohol, anything I could possibly get my hands on to numb whatever pain or suppress any feelings that I was having. And that's what I did. And by the time I was probably about early 30s, I found myself locked up for probably the fifth time. And I was facing 11 years in Maryland's state prison and a year and a half to four in Pennsylvania prison uh, with a seven-year backup time over stupid stuff, John. You know, I mean, indirect results of the disease of addiction. And I think quite often we don't take a look at that part of it and, and where your path goes and, and how you got where you were, you know, and I ended up in that concrete jail cell, not knowing where my life was going to go. Did you feel like you were predestined for this? In other words, when you tried alcohol for the first time, there was just something about it that affected you or was it more of the environment that you were in? I've dealt with a lot of folks in my career that they just have a proclivity to substance abuse. It's something about it. It just draws them in and they didn't necessarily have the same experience as you did. Yeah, I think it's a twofer. You know, I mean, for me, we talk about the generational aspect of addiction, right? And I will say that my mom had issues with alcohol, so did my father. So I don't know if there was a predisposition there. I will say in the earlier days, because of my mom, I was very vigilant. I didn't want to be like my mom. I didn't want to be that that lady that had to go to the baseball games with alcohol in her cup. And it's so amazing to me. You know, I look back on it and it's like, I didn't want to be like her, but I ended up just like her. And that's, but I also think quite often I didn't have the coping skills, John. I didn't have the coping skills to deal with what I was dealing with. And I know a lot of kids or people don't necessarily have the same type of traumas that I had. But even with that, I thought I was able to deal with some of that. And really, I just didn't have the coping skills. I wasn't taught that. What I was taught in school was DARE, right? Say no to drugs. I'm I'm an alumni of the DARE program. And I remember that. but, But at the same time, Again, like I said, the, the disease of addiction blindsides you. You don't even know it's coming. And when you're in the grips of addiction, you don't realize that you're in those grips and you just keep going and spiraling down. Right. So at what point was the turnaround? Where where did it come to pass that you were getting your life back, so to speak? Yeah. So it, I have to laugh about it because um, I was in a rural community in Maryland by this time and when I was coming home from divorce court, um, the judge ordered mitigation. And what was interesting about that, especially in the dynamic of uh, domestic violence, was, you know, this was still going on. And I go to back to my house and there's DEA. And I'm like, where the hell did DEA come from? I didn't even know they had DEA in this rural county. Um, but my ex-husband had called on me. And really, the turning point for me was when I was in that concrete jail cell. And I just thought to myself, you know, I'm a mother. Everything that I wanted from a traditional family setting, you know, white picket fence, husband, going to school. And I, I didn't do anything that, that you, is typically expected of you in society. And going into that jail cell, I realized, you know, I may have a problem. The interesting part of that for the turning point was the fact that I knew a little tad bit about addiction, but I also knew that in order for me to get out of jail or prison up in, in Pennsylvania, I had to ask for treatment. I didn't want to go to treatment necessarily because I knew anything about recovery. I wanted to go to treatment because it was like the monopoly get out of jail free card. So in even doing that and being assessed in that jail cell, they actually shipped me over to treatment. And that was the first time, John, that I was in a group setting with other people like me. And they told me that addiction was a disease, not a moral failing. And there was an aha moment in that, that, oh, my goodness, 
nothing is really wrong with me. This is a medical condition and I am surrounded by other people that are experiencing the same medical condition or this medical illness. And it was just an aha moment for me. And from there, you know, that's where that path, that path of recovery started. Knowledge. Did you have any help from friends, family, or did you have to pick yourself up after out of that jail cell? What kind of support system did you have? I really didn't have a ton of support. You know, at this point, the addiction, the criminal justice involvement really disconnected me from a lot of my family. I will tell you, there was a time, you know, I tried AA, Alcoholics Anonymous at one point. So when I went into the jail, I knew that there was that book for AA and I started reading it. And I remember a correctional officer coming and doing counts, counts at the time. And she told me, she said, read page 29. So I was like, wow, she knows about addiction. So that was pretty exciting to me. But right. as far as supports, you know, I had a boyfriend at the time. He is now my husband. We've been together for 10 years traveling this road of recovery together. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And when I got out, he had attended Narcotics Anonymous back in the day um, and had about seven years of recovery under his belt and relapsed, but came back into the recovery fold with me. And we started going to fellowship meetings together. And then I found the support through other individuals who are in recovery, who really just picked me up by my coattails. Or, and, or actually, I followed their coattails and just picked me up and just really taught me the way of life and recovery. Right. It's funny. I, uh, I've represented hundreds, maybe thousands of people over the course of my career, so many of them in the grip of alcohol. It is, I, I sort of the best analogy I could think of is you're standing over this abyss and you can either jump in or not. Nobody pushes you in you sort of make the decision yourself or whatever biological DNA you have puts you in that abyss. And once you fall in, getting out is almost impossible. And I, and I, you know, and a lot of people don't know this, but alcoholism is not just how much you drink. And that's part of it. And, you know, people that drink a lot, but it's continuing to drink even after alcohol has severely impacted your life adversely. That's, that's what an alcoholic is, is somebody who's had you know, a lot of times, it, you know, you can measure it by, you know, they get a DUI and they keep drinking or they went to jail, they keep drinking, but it is everywhere. It, it is the level of drinking in the DC metro area where I live. And, you know, I'm sure where, where you are too, it's part of the cultural norm now. And, and our, I'm Gen X. So what do we do after work? We go to happy hour. Mm-hmm. Happy hour turns into another scotch at home, which turns into, you know, maybe your wife's having some wine. I'll have one of those too. And before you know it, you're, Middle aged, and you've been drinking every day for 20 years of your life. I've seen in some cases. So, how did you fight back on that? Knowing what I know about the cases I've been involved in, how did you fight back on that? How did you, did you reduce the amount you were drinking? Did you do something else like exercise? I mean, how did you do it? I know it's not just some AA meeting or whatever. It's you. You did something. Right. You, you are responsible for you ultimately. And, and I, and I've seen a million stories of people who are court-ordered into therapy or court-ordered into addiction counseling or court-ordered into inpatient treatment. And unless you make the choice to make that work for you, it doesn't work. Otherwise, it's just a get-out-of-jail-free card. Yeah. I appreciate that question. Wow, what a great question because quite often people don't ever ask me that. There are many and many of things that I've had to do. I will tell you, you know, it is probably, I know we have the opioid crisis, but alcohol is probably the hardest thing to stay off of. Because there are liquor stores on every corner, there's happy hour, 
you go into, yep. a, you, you know, you go into a restaurant, you're seeing it. And I still, you music. Know, it's in our music, music. it's in our movies, it's, it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And it's really, honestly, how I did it, I changed my perception. And I know that may be a simple line, but it really isn't. It's really about playing that tape over. If I just take one, if I just, if I just take one, you know, one is, is way too much because I know how that's going to make me feel. I know I'm going to want to continue to chase it. And what I did was I really started to just change that perception. People ask me all the time, you know, how do you not drink? Well, I can drink, John. I mean, like you said, at this point, there's a choice for me. I had to develop some coping skills, some mechanisms and supports to lean on where I would call individuals in recovery and say, hey, I'm feeling feeling this way or I want to go to a bar or I just finished going to on vacation. And I'm really struggling. What what do I need to do? And I'd have to play that tape back of where it landed me. But what I've done is I've really changed my perception. And I said, I, I can drink, but I choose not to drink. And when I wow. when I change that perception, I, I create this level of empowerment in me. And, you know, I know I, you know, it was mentioned to you where I am in my life. And what I've actually done myself is I found some things that I love and I put my all into that. And I chase the things I love, like I chase that drug or alcohol. And my love was education. So I went back to school. Um, and the more I stay busy, the easier it is for me to stay out of my own head and stay out of my own way. And I went back to school and, you know, addiction will always manifest in other ways. And mine just ends up <laughs> manifesting in let's acquire another degree. And <laughs> You're addicted to school. I, I love it. School. <laughs> yeah. So I actually went back. When I did uh, start the journey of recovery, I went back to school and I got my AA, my BA, my MPA, and I'm on the tail end of my doctorate. But it's in, you know, it's a, what a great time to have this conversation because I'm kind of in limbo right now. I'm at the tail end of that doctorate waiting on my internal um, review board approval and I'm really lost right now and that's okay. And I just really ride that wave. Yeah. Life isn't always going to be hunky dory, you no. know? No, it's not. And we, we tend to self-medicate with alcohol, especially when, um, yeah, I, I, I will say in my domestic relations practice, I probably represent the average age is 35 to 50 years old. Mm -hmm. um, that's the you know, people over 50 generally are, are, are staying married or already divorced. People under 35 are either getting married or at the beginning of their marriage. So it really is that age range. And there is a universal almost culture that's been created in this country around alcohol. You wake up in the morning and you know you go work out because we're healthy and we're northern Virginia where I live and you know then you go out for happy hour at night. And then on Saturday and Sunday even you go out with your friends or your your spouse significant other and you drink. You go play golf, you drink. You go uh to a ball game, you drink. It's just part of who we are and what we do and I don't know what the, I'm not a policymaker, so I'm not the answer, but I think the answer is getting your story out. How is it that each individual person, one person at a time can break that cycle? Because until we do that, we're going to continue to suffer the, the mental and physical aspects of addiction, especially alcohol. So I don't want to go too raw unless you're okay with it. You already went and I can't thank you enough. You know, you know one of the things we find when we have these conversations is I know there's somebody out there that's going to download this episode and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe she just said 
I flip the script and it's empowering and, and they've never tried that before. And maybe that will help them. And maybe it's just one person. I don't know. But let me ask a little bit deeper. Did the criminal justice system make it harder for you or more helpful? A lot of what we're talking about, and we have, we've had some episodes on this in criminal justice reform right now is, is the decriminalization of substance abuse in a lot of ways. And it's become more popular to decriminalize substance abuse than it is in the old way, uh, so to speak. And I think our politics hasn't caught up with, with this yet. So was there anything about what you went through in the punitive side of your experience that helped you get clean? Absolutely. I sometimes in the recovery community have the unpopular opinion because I think that law enforcement is not our enemy. They're They're our collaborator. I will tell you, coming out of the Adams County prison in Pennsylvania, um, I had a promotion or a probation officer that was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. You know, I sat in, across from him, he, him and he said to me, you know, I have not seen anyone make it but one other person, but I believe in you and I believe that you can make it. And I will tell you, based on my story of my past, you know, with individuals not believing in me or me feeling that I wasn't worthy or I had any type of integrity. For him to say that to me meant a lot. For him to tell me that he believed in me because, you know, quite often we bucket authoritative figures. We don't want to interact with authoritative figures. We want to get in there and and get out as soon as possible. But he worked with me throughout the entire process when I was on probation, really finding different and alternative methods. If I had to go to a meeting, if I had to cross state lines, if I needed to gain employment, all of that. So Law enforcement and criminal justice helped me. It really stopped me in my tracks in a way that I've never experienced before. The criminal justice system, I know quite often, you know, there are, po- there are opinions about the criminal justice system. We know we have justice reform. We know that we're really trying to battle um, recognizing the issues with substance use and substance use disorders and mental illness in terms of not arresting our way out of things. But the one thing that we have to do is, again, you know, realize that law enforcement and criminal justice is not our enemy. We can do a lot to cross collaborate in terms of deflection, diversion. I will say one of the areas that I speak about a lot in terms of uh, law enforcement are the different entry points. Um, if you look at my criminal history, a lot of it I've done my own expungements on. But if you look at my criminal history, for example, There were a lot of different times that we could have probably had a conversation or law enforcement could have had a conversation with me to really show and recognize the issues associated with uh, substance use disorder. And it was just never, there was never that connection made, whether it be through the domestic violence, the family services, just different areas of the criminal justice system where it didn't have to get to the point where it was that bad, where I was facing that much time. Brandy, are you saying there's a middle ground? Oh my goodness. Hallelujah. Yes, there is. (laughs) Between two extremes. Really? In America today in 2021? Shocker. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely is. You know, but honestly, John, what it's done is it's fueled my passion for creating some education and knowledge around law enforcement and that collaboration. As a matter of fact, that's what I'm doing my dissertation on. Really? Yeah. I'm doing it on drug courts. Uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. We have a I have a lot of experience in drug court and mental health courts, yeah. which is a similar, outstanding, just amazing, outstanding program, uplifting if you've ever been to a docket, those of you who are listening. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. As a matter of fact, um, when I entered the behavioral health arena, I entered as a peer specialist, which is an individual with lived experience with mental health and substance use, navigating 
behavioral health and criminal justice. And I was placed in drug courts. Um, and I really grew to have a passion for that because I think that everyone, while the behavioral health and, and criminal justice are working on two specific missions, when those uh, missions uh, collaborate and really um, work together as a team, we can see a lot of lives saved. Um, I think, and and just I do want to mention this too, John. But before you, before you leave that, sure. Just so everybody's clear, if you don't know what drug court is, drug court is a program by which, for certain drug offenses, for individuals that don't have extensive criminal records, maybe some criminal record, but not extensive, and nonviolent offenders. They are diverted from prosecution, ultimate incarceration to a docket, a drug court docket where a judge or a, or a panel of judges checks in with them every week, every month, every six months and so on and so forth. And they're going through a series of not only community service and treatment, but also the criminal justice system at the same time, but it's designed to rehabilitate. And it's and at the end of your drug court time, your charges get dismissed if you've complied with all the requirements. And, you know, when you see someone who's wrapped up in their substance abuse, their hair looks different, their face looks different, their body is sick, you can tell. And then six months later, I've had clients that come in and they've been clean for six months. Eyes are bright, their skin is sparkling, their hair is beautiful, they look fantastic. You can tell not only just mentally, but physically how much better they are. So outstanding in a mental health court, similar, and, and it just involves mental illness, but it's an outstanding program that's been funded at the federal and state level that a lot of states have. So I just wanted to make sure that we got in there a little bit about what that was in case people didn't know what it was. Yeah, I have, I'm chuckling while you're saying that because um, everyone's like, well, what does recovery give you? Well, it gave me about 20 pounds. I'm <laughs> healthy. I actually eat now. Um, you know, that's I don't give myself away. You know, I think quite often, even when we're talking about law enforcement and criminal justice involvement, um, quite often society uh, thinks that we get a free pass. And that's really not what I'm saying. You know, when you're working with um, specialty courts, diversion and deflection programs, it's not a pass. No, it's work. It's work. Oh, it's work. Absolutely. Um, from the different phases you have to go through, ensuring that you have employment, all of that. But, you know, the reality is, if we want a journey of recovery, we have to look at structure. One of the things that happens when you're really heavy in the grips of addiction is you don't have structure and you don't feel like you're a productive member of society. So I think that the drug courts, the deflection and diversion programs really start to give you that structure. And then you can start to find your purpose and you have a mo you have clarity. And that that's pretty amazing. So I'm a full um, blown supporter of criminal justice and working together with behavioral health uh, to make a difference in the lives of others. Absolutely. Now. When you when you finish your doctorate this time and it's and it fully because right now you have one in public administration, right? I have a master's in public administration. Okay. This so is this gonna... would be your doctorate in public administration. Right. I know you're obviously the executive director of the Safe Project, but what's next? What else are you gonna do? Because I, I I imagine that you've thought a lot about policy. Mm -hmm. I think you, you obviously as someone who's getting their doctorate, you you've studied a lot of policy. Are you in a position now to start using the story before the story to help craft policy, to help move the ball forward, to help get that middle ground we talked about, as opposed to the anti-police extreme over here and the pro-police extreme over here? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been doing that all along. I do believe in exposure therapy. And when I say that, I'm not talking about me throwing a snake on you, John, and hoping you're not scared of snakes anymore. I think it's sharks, not snakes. Okay. I think it's really important. Um, There's a time and place for everything. Um, You know, so as as I get the opportunity to be at tables where we formulate uh, policy, adapt policy, it's really important for me to sprinkle that story in there. Uh, because I think it has a really heavy hit, a heavy impact on uh, individuals because, but but the interesting part is quite often I don't enter into um, these arenas or sit at these tables and, hey, let me, let me tell you my story. What I actually do as I sprinkle it in is we're having conversations about p- policy formation or formulation, and I start to tell little snippets of my story. It, it really humanizes what's happening out there. I do a lot of work uh, in the criminal justice arena around uh, life sentencers or long-term sentencers uh, and making sure that we have our prison population who is supported behind the walls. I talk a lot about backward mapping and, and antiquated policy. We're doing a great job of moving forward with justice reform, police reform, and how to move forward in, in creating new policy. The problem quite often is we need to take a look at our old policies and ensure that we're creating um, a policy that is inclusive. And I think it's pretty interesting. Um, There's always a silver lining in COVID. You know, we'll always hear the excuse, well, policy takes a long time or, or that's policy. Well, the reality is COVID hit and we saw how quickly policy can change. And we also, yeah. So we also know that humans change policy. um, And if we get to the right humans, they can do something about it. So that is no longer an excuse that it takes time or that's policy. It's really important for us to know um, who to go to and how to change that policy. So it's inclusive and really meets people where they are. Now, this is a politics free zone, but I'll go off on a quick tangent. You just saw what happened in Israel, whether you support the existing regime or the the now former regime or not, it doesn't matter. The reality is at some point, there is a way for the extreme right and the extreme left to come together to, to effectuate things quickly. And that's, you know, even, even what we've seen during COVID, one of the things that, that is, is striking about it is what you just talked about, which is it's okay for us to move quickly. And there are emergencies. And one of those emergencies is substance abuse, period, end of story. There is no, you know, there is no question that it's something that needs to be done. And it's not it's not going to get done if we're just constantly trashing law enforcement and it's not going to get done if we just are all in on nothing but punitive measures to punish those who are suffering from a very terrible disease. No question. So if you could give your best advice to someone going through what you went through, in other words, you you talked about you had domestic violence issues, issues in your childhood the most horrific thing possible happened to a child happened to you. I mean, everything that could go wrong from you at age 11 or young, younger forward went wrong. If you could give anybody struggling with similar issues to you that you, that you had growing up or, or into your 20s and, and 30s, any advice, just one quick thing that you could think of that would really would help in your mind, what would that be? To realize that you're not alone, that there are others out there. Uh, to stay fully connected and to find your tribe, but also know that life is going to be like a roller coaster and you just kind of have to throw your hands up and enjoy the ride and don't look for things outside of yourself. 
but it's really about connection, connection. You know, the opposite of addiction is connection and staying connected Mm -hmm. to your support network is imperative um, as you travel the journey of recovery. The opposite of addiction is connection. That is one for the ages. That's fantastic. Thank you, Will. Well, Brandy, it's it's been a, a real pleasure having you on. We could go for hours at this, uh, especially with your story. Uh, we'd love to have you come back on again and talk about some of your experiences once that doctorate's done. Thank you so much for joining us. Look forward to having you back soon. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Thank you. The Mind Itself podcast is unique in that we look at the intersection between mental health and the law and how it impacts you. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave a comment, rate, and review, and share with someone you know. Thanks for listening.